prayer after you sit. God, we do thank you for the family that we are a part of here. Thank you that, that what ties us together is the spirit that you sent into our lives. And it forms us into one body in Christ. And we ask that today as we open the scripture and as we look at how Jesus is greater than all the things that we tend to run to, that you would just help that to apply in our own lives, that, that our, our, our eyes, ears, and hearts, and mind would be open to what you would say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 1. We're continuing on in our season in the year, which is the season of the mission of God. We look at these uh, books that were written to the church as it started. Um, we focus on mission. One of the things we say at our church is we, we really believe you need to commit to finding your role in the mission of God. Whatever it may be, he's gifted you, he's, he's, he's given you talents and abilities and passions and desires. We're talking, curious, leading a class on that in Sunday school, looking at who you are and where does that guide you in surrendering to Jesus and what it looks like. Uh, and so we're working our way this, this season through the book of Hebrews. Last week we saw the first few verses focused on the fact that Jesus was greater than anything else, that he's all we could ever need. But we ended by, remind, by saying honestly we look other ways. We look for other things, right? We know Jesus is the greatest thing we could ever have. Uh, we know that theologically. We know that in our head. We read it over and over, and we even sing it in our songs, but our hearts very often run to other things. And that's the theme of Hebrews. It was written to these Jewish believers uh, from somebody that we don't even know who, exactly who wrote it, but, but they, he, was he or she was constantly saying, Jesus is greater than all these things that you're holding on to. He fulfills and surpasses everything that you've come to love and seek meaning and peace in. And so today we're going to work through chapters 1 and 2. Uh, I read the, we did the first three verses of chapter 1 last week, but I'll read chapter 1 and 2. It's about 30 verses altogether. It's not too long. Uh, but follow with me in your Bible. Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And this is where our text will start today. So he became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, and today I've become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings the first, his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says... Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up, roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your, your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? 
We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It's not to angels that he subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of the devil, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, (laughs) how many of you, as I read through that, said that's a bit challenging to follow? What exactly? I mean, we get angels. Angels are in there, right? But it's it's a bit of a challenge. What is a guy trying to say? And I thought it would be good to walk you through how I approach Texas. When When I'm sitting down in that office up there or in my house, in my chair, working through a sermon text, how do I approach it? I'm just going to walk you through kind of what I do. And I start with a very pragmatic strategy that looks at the structure of the text. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at this thing I just read to you that seemed to be all over the map about a lot of different things. What, how does it actually fit together? It's always good to start with, with just the text. It's especially good in a book like Hebrews. Hebrews has a lot of Old Testament references. That's all those little indentions, if you see that, in chapter 1, where there's all these. Hebrews has quite a few. In fact, let me just list them. Hebrews 1, chapter 5 has one. Hebrews 1, chapter 5 has another. Hebrews 1, 6. Hebrews 1, 7. Hebrews 1, 8. Hebrews 1, 9. Hebrews 1, 10. I'm just going to read these through. Is that okay? <laughs> this is how many times Hebrews refers to the Old Testament. Okay? And it, it's, it's astounding how much... I'm not going to read them through. Um, but that was pretty cool, a little trick I did. Can we do it again just to see? No, I won't do it again. You can come check it out. I really haven't made it up. But Hebrews, is, it pulls from the Old Testament, and it's because it's written to these Jewish believers who have this Old Testament in their heads. Now, a lot of us, we don't have that much in our heads. In fact, sometimes we have this mistaken idea that the Old Testament's not really important anymore. We just want to focus on the New Testament. But Hebrews says, no, it's all right there. And so it's important as we as we go through this text and look at the structure, that we realize 
there is a structure to it. It really, what I read breaks down into kind of three sections. Chapter 1, 4 to 14 is the first section. Chapter 2, 1 to 4 is another section. And chapter 2, 5 to 18 is a third section. Now in the first section, chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, the writer says over and over that Jesus is greater than the angels. He says it lots. That, that, that's the premise in verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And, and my first question is, why the comparison? Stop. We're not, we're not getting there. We're looking at the structure of the text first. We'll get there. But I want you to see this whole first section is about Jesus is greater than the angels. First, he's the, Jesus is the son, he says in 1, 5, and 6. And not, not the angels aren't the son. And the angels in verse 6 actually worship Jesus. And in verse 7, it says they are the servants. And in verse 8 and 9, it says the Son, Jesus, is king over everything. Jesus is the one who's made this all, it says in verses 10 to 12. And never have the angels ever been given the place of Jesus in verse 13. And he closes that section by saying in verse 14, angels are the servants of those who inherit Salvation. So that whole first section, 1, 4 to 14, is all about Jesus here, angels here. Jesus is greater than angels. That's the first section. Then chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, is the second section, and it's a warning to pay attention. Now, when you read the whole book of Hebrews, there are four different sections, and you'll see them as we go through them, where Jesus is greater than something. What's interesting is all four of those sections have a warning in them. And this is the warning for this section. In, in chapter 2, that says we must pay great attention, better attention, closer attention to what we've heard. Once again, he links it to the angels a bit there. And uh, he says, if the angels, if the message received from angels was binding, we'll get to that in a minute. What is that? How much more Jesus, the message we heard from the Son? That's the warning. We've got to pay attention to what we heard from Jesus. The warning there. And then we move into that third section, chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. He brings the angels up again, but he moves more into what Jesus has done, focusing mainly on Jesus. And he says, Jesus became like us to free us. He writes about Jesus becoming one of us, human. And it's for a very important reason. In 2, 14 and 15, he says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity... So that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. You see, Jesus, he says, became like us to free us. So he starts with this, Jesus is greater than the angels. You better pay close attention to Jesus because Jesus became like us to free us. Now there is one question if you're going to analyze the text, and I don't know if you're reading along with me, but how many of you... In your Bibles, where I was reading, say, in chapter 2, verse 6, 7, and 8, yours, your Bible says them, and my Bible says him. How many says them? Raise your hand. Now, the question is, him or them? What is it? And this is not as tricky as it looks. I didn't just sneak it in on you that it says them, and I was just reading him because that's what I want it to say. I'm going to tell you why, and it's really not that important, but we're, we're looking at the structure of the text. In the Greek of the book of Hebrews, the word there in those verses in 2, 6 to 8 is him. H-I-M, singular, or it could have, it's that singular uh, pronoun. So why did some Bibles say them? Well, it's a quote from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. And this is what Psalm 8 says. 
What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet. Now the people translating Hebrews from Greek to English said, look, the writer is referring back to plural them in the psalm, so we're going to put them there. I think that's a really dumb idea. But I'm not a translator. I'm not smart enough to do that. But the Greek there is actually him. So that's why I'm going to read it that way. It's not talking about them. They just put the, most of you that have them will also have a little footnote in your Bible. How many of you have a little footnote? And if you go down there, it says, some translations say him or whatever it may be. The point is, I think the best translation there is him. So you're free to mark up your Bible if you want to put him over them. Be creative, that, whatever you want to do. But that, this is analyzing the text. This is what I get to do. So we'll move on from there because you're like, so what? Nobody's going to go out there and ask you, hey, did you, have you ever read Hebrews 2? Do you, why does it say him and them? I don't, nobody's going to ask you that. But now you know if they do. If you get on Jeopardy, you can win, like, what's his name? James Holzhauser. But the question I started with, right, after we've analyzed the text, the big question that jumps out of us is, why compare Jesus to the angels? I mean, duh, we all know it. Jesus is greater than angels. It seems like a, a redundant thing, right? It's pretty clear, though, that that's the writer's point. Jesus is greater than the angels. Why stress it so strongly? What was there in the thinking of these Jewish Christians that made it so important for the writer to say one, two, twelve, fifteen times, Jesus is greater than the angels. Well, it's hinted at in chapter 2, verse 2, and it goes back to the Jews and the Torah or the law. See, in, in chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, For if the message spoken by angels was binding. What is that message? What's he talking about there? Well, the Jewish idea in their cultural psyche, the way they thought, was that when Moses got the law from God, it was given via the angels. The angels actually gave the law to Moses. And they based that off a, a passage in Deuteronomy 33, 2, that says this, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones, or angels, from the south, from his mountain slopes. And so the Jew, Jews came to believe that the way Moses got the law was God proclaimed it, gave it to the angels, and the angels brought it to Mount Sinai and gave it to Moses. That's their, their mindset. So that way, the Jews thought of the angels in a pretty exalted state. They were the ones who actually gave us the law of God, Right? And that, that, the law was very important. He says in 2.2, for since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. The point is, though, that the writer's saying is no matter how valuable the law is and no matter how valuable the angels are who supposedly delivered it to Moses, that now the new word has come. Right? Back in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and maybe even through the angels, in various times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And so the writer's saying, yes, the law was important that you got through the angels, but now the word has come through the Son of God. This does not minimize the value of the law. It's just trying to remind people that Jesus is even greater than the law. 
and the ones who supposedly gave it to Moses from God. You see, they have the same tendency we do. When it comes to spiritual or religious ideas, we can easily drift into valuing past experience over present relationship. Churches always laugh about the phrase, we never did it that way before. Right? Because once we've done it one way, that's obviously God's intended way for us to do it for the rest of eternity. You've heard the jokes, right, about how do Mennonites change light bulbs and how, to, and how does a Baptist change a light bulb? How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is change? Why do we change anything? Right? And I, I laugh about that, but we, what? <laughs> There's a tendency in all of us to have an experience that, of some sort that is meaningful. And then to expect that it has to happen that way or that it could never happen any other way as far as time goes on. And the Jews had the law given by angels. At least that's what they thought. What could ever be better than that, they say. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is greater than that because it's not something that just happened in the past. It's a relationship that you have right now every single day that you're living with the Spirit of God in you. Now, for us, you know, we, we probably think of, well, of course, Jesus is greater than angels. Of course, Jesus is greater than law. Or we may think that, or, or so what? What's, what? What's their issue? This is not a big deal to us. But just like I said last week, this book does challenge us right where we are today more than we may even realize it. And the writer says that Jesus is greater than, and the question for you and I is today greater than what for us today? What is it that we run to based out of this text seeking it to be greater than Jesus? That's why there's a warning in 2 verse 1. We must pay better attention to what we've heard because we get so distracted. We run to other things. I said it last week, Jesus is all we could ever need and yet still we go looking and looking and looking for things to make us feel better. Many things that we substitute for angels, the angels of Hebrews 1 and 2. And some of them you can guess right away, but the ones that are dangerous are the ones that are subtle, that we don't really realize that we place them above Jesus. Now, we tend to start by thinking about things that people seek instead of Jesus out there, because we think we've got it right, right? We've, we've already figured it out, but there's a lot of people out there that run to other things other than Jesus, and, and one of the things that we want to say, and I, 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 I agree with this, but just I'm not, I'm not letting you off the hook just because I'm talking about people outside right now. Okay? But I, I want you to think about this too. We say to the world outside that Jesus is greater than today's vague spirituality. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, I'm not religious, I'm just very spiritual? Right? All of us have heard that a thousand times. I'm a very spiritual person. I'm just not very religious. Now the question is, and the reason I put vague in the point is, what exactly does that mean, spiritual? And let me, let me show you a picture of a guy. Slavoj Zizek, this is not his mugshot, actually. He looks kind of like a scary guy. Doesn't he look a little scary, Slavov? He's a Slovenian philosopher and political theorist, and I've got a couple questions. Number one is, how do you get that gig? 
Do you wake up in the morning and say, I want to be a philosopher and a political theorist, and you hang out your shingle? I don't know. Uh, but but the, other, the other question is, he kind of looks like a Slovenian philosopher, doesn't he? Don't you think? And a political, he looks like a guy who's thought about way too much politics. Well, the reason, why would I put him up there, right? Why would I put him up there? I put him up there because he came up with a term in his political theorizing called master signifier. Think of the following for Sunday. I don't know why that's there, Rob, but that's okay. Just ignore that. I may have sent that. That may be there. Um, Master signifier. Now, what is, why, Jeff, what are you talking about? Because we like to talk about people out there, I'm going to talk about Americans. Can, we, can I have permission to talk about Americans? Yes, you love that when I talk about Americans, right? And guess what? I'm going to do equal time to Democrats and Republicans. About 10, 12 years ago, there was a, a young guy, you may have heard of him, named Barack Obama, who ran a presidential campaign, and his slogan was, change you can believe in. Change you can believe in. Everybody got excited about that. Well, about four years ago, or two and a half, three, four years ago, there was another guy you may have heard of named Donald Trump. <laughs> Ever heard of him? And he said, make America great again, right? We've heard those two slogans, change you can believe in, make America great again. Well, Zizek would say, change and great are master signifiers, which means everybody thinks they know what it means, but nobody really knows what it means right? What is Obama's change? What is that? Well, for every single person that was like, change, we can't believe in, it meant something different. And for make America great again, for every single person that wants America to be great, they have a different idea of what America great, what it would look like. And, and Zizek says these master signifiers allow people to believe without ever having to believe. Because they can rally behind a concept of what it means to them, and, and they don't ever have to really commit to anything that it might actually mean. That, my friends, in today's culture is spiritual, but not religious. Everybody has a meaning of what spiritual is. And they all agree, oh, I'm spiritual. Oh, yeah, you bet I am, because it means whatever they want it to mean. And, and what this writer's saying here is, is Jesus is greater than whatever you think spirituality might be. There's a real person with, with, with reality and truth embedded in his life and in his teachings and in your relationship with him that is specific and addresses you. And, and a lot of the world today, spirituality has just become this thing that is whatever they want it to be. There's a passage in Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Paul says, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. And then I highlighted, their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. That doesn't mean they just worship food. That's not what that means. The stomach for them was the seat of their desires and their emotions. And, and what Paul's saying here is there's this group of people that will make God out to be anything they want him to be. Their God is their desire. And that's where we are in the world today, where spirituality becomes whatever. Old Testament Judges 21, 15. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. That's where we live. That's the culture we live in. And that's one application of the text today. I think if people tell you they're spiritual, not religious, you should say, what do you mean by spiritual? Just li and, and listen. Don't try to teach them what spiritual is. They're not listening anyway. 
But, but if they start asking that question and, and you ask that question, then sometimes they'll think, I don't really know what I mean. I, maybe it means I take walks. Maybe it means I volunteer at my local food bank. Whatever, let people talk about it and engage that. But that's one application, and maybe that applies to you, but I'm assuming most of you are here today not because you're spiritual, not religious, but because you do care that Jesus is greater than that. And so this, these next two points, is where it gets to hit you. That, it was fun to talk about everybody else, wasn't it? So fun. We, we, we got Americans, we got Democrats, we got Republicans, we got some Zizek guy up there. We talked about everybody else, but now let's talk about me and you. And Hebrews says to us, first of all, Jesus is greater than your past meaningful experiences. Jesus is greater than your past meaningful experiences. What do I mean by that? As I said, we go through our lives along our spiritual journey and we have moments. Moments that were experiences where we come to know Jesus in a deeper and a more profound way and they are powerful. They are life-shaping for us. And we're never the same. I remember when I was just leaving university, I was trying to make some decisions, and I went up one day on the side of this mountain, and I stayed there for several hours praying, saying, God, what am I supposed to do? And I came off of that mountain knowing exactly what I was supposed to do, and I knew it because it I didn't want to do what I knew I was supposed to do. But I knew if I, if I didn't get up in the morning, or if I didn't do what I, I was supposed to do, I'd look in the mirror every day my whole life and say, you didn't do what you're supposed to do. I knew it. It's a profound spiritual moment for me. I can think back of that. Or, or there's songs. We sing, so, you probably have a song. For me, one of the songs is Great is Thy Faithfulness. That was my dad's favorite song. And it was his life. And so every time we sing that, man, I tear up. That's a powerful, powerful song. Right? Or maybe it's a way of Bible study. You started studying the Bible a different way or you've got this author that just opened up the scripture to you and you think, oh, this is the best. Those are powerful things. I'm glad you have those. <laughs> but here's the problem. We can, without realizing it, come to value past experience over present relationship. We can make our faith all about that experience and expect that we'll have it every single time. I can go up to the mountain every time and say, God, now. And God may say, I don't want to talk to you on the mountain. I want to talk to you down there. I want to say something else. There's a great story in the Old Testament. As the children of Israel were wandering through the desert and they spoke against God and God was, this is one of those really interesting ones. Back in Numbers 21, the Lord sent serpents among the camp. Aren't you glad God hasn't chosen to ever do that again? And it says in, in Numbers 21, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned against you when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Fascinating story, right? One day maybe, we'll, I think I did a sermon on that years ago. 800 years or so later, in 2 Kings 18.4, Hezekiah becomes king. This is what happens. Then he, Hezekiah, removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones. He cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. And that's a perfect example of what we do. We have this powerful thing that God does in our life and we hold on to that powerful thing. 
And we begin to worship that experience instead of walking in a relationship with Jesus. And very often God has to come and destroy that experience to let us realize, and we feel like our life's falling apart when all he's actually doing is saying, you're distracted, it's me. You know, it's, it's obvious, the main one, one of the main ones that we, music. <laughs> we, music is powerful. And guess what? Music throughout history changes. It changes. Uh, I love it when somebody says, I just wish we had traditional worship at our church. And I'm like, you mean like Gregorian chant? Or would you like it all to be in Hebrew with no instruments? Music changes. And guess what? Even people that say, oh, I wish our church was more contemporary. A hundred years from now, the church is going to be beyond that. Something different. But what we do is we hold on to that as if this is the only way God could speak. You see, the beautiful thing about this truth, that it's, that it's not that Jesus is greater than an experience that you've had, is that it cuts both ways. Because you've had many powerful, emotional, spiritual experiences maybe in your life that you hold on to, but there are just as many people out there that have had negative, painful spiritual experiences where the church has hurt them, where the person representing God to them has done things in ways that have scarred their psyche for the rest of their life. And, and one of the reasons we have to let go of experiences, even positive ones, and walk with Jesus to where he leads us next is because it models the way for people to be able to let go of those painful things as well. Jesus is not limited to that priest or that minister or that elder in the church who did that. He's greater than that. He's greater than our good religious experiences, and he's greater than our bad ones. It's a relationship that we're called to, to walk with him. And finally, this is the one that will ruffle the most feathers. The writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is greater than your understanding of the Bible. Whew. <laughs> you see, he's talking about the Jewish law to these people in the book. And he's saying he's not negating the Jewish law at all. In fact, he says it's, it's, it was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. But he says, if that's true of the law of the scripture that they had at that time, how much greater is the word that Jesus actually spoke, the relationship we have with God? You see, he's not discounting the law in any way. He's not saying the law is bad and it's done and, and there's no, no value in that. He's just saying Jesus is so much more. And I would say to you today, that I, I mean, I love this book. I study it all. I, I, I get paid to study it. What a gig. Who gets that? Why would I want Isaac's job when I've got my job, right? I get, but Jesus is greater than my interpretation or understanding of Scripture. I always have to know that's the truth. Because guess what? I have been wrong. I know, I know. <laughs> I know. It's, I told you it's going to ruffle feathers. And how many of you have thought you knew something for sure about the faith 20 years ago and now you realize you were not very smart back then? So it's actually quite freeing to realize that Jesus is greater than my interpretation of the scriptures. Theology, our theology, our interpretation of what the Bible says always has to look through Jesus as a lens to interpret it. 
all throughout history, slavery. Apartheid was justified in South Africa using biblical references. Were they interpreting the scripture properly? No, we all see that now. But in that moment, they needed to realize that Jesus, how he lived his life, how he walked, how he calls people to things, he's the living word. You remember the Pharisees, they said, Jesus, you're breaking the Sabbath. And he said, I'm the, Lord, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm bigger than that rule. You've got to understand that. And I'm, it doesn't mean he's contradicting the law. It means he actually is the embodiment of it in a way that they didn't even get. I come back to this scripture over and over. You've, I, in 20 years, you've probably heard me say this scripture, John 5, 39, and 40, from this pulpit maybe 50, 60 times. You'd study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Once again, the truth of the scripture can only be fully understand in a relation, understood in a relationship with Jesus. And that's where we get into trouble because we hold to this thing and, and we beat people to death with what we think is true instead of letting Jesus work in us and on them and being open to being corrected as we walk in relationship with Jesus. Letting him lead us where he wants us to go. Now, the, the, writers of, the writer of Hebrews is reminding us that when it comes to the matters of the Spirit, and this is where I want to end you today, that the greatest thing of the Spirit is the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. That's why he starts in chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And he continues that in chapter 2, verses 9 to 18. He says, we don't see yet everything subject to him, but what do we see? We see Jesus. I love that verse. How many of you would admit that when you look at the world, it doesn't look like Jesus is in control? And that's what the guy says. We don't see it, but what do we see? We see Jesus. We look at him. And then it goes on, who suffered death for every one of us, who brings his sons and daughters to glory, who, who makes us holy, who calls us his brothers and sisters. And, and what I love about this is that we see all that we saw last week, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his being. That's who Jesus was. And that last part of chapter 2 says he became like us. He took on humanity and suffered and died so that we could be set free. Now, if you don't see the beauty of that, I, I had a preacher when I was a kid that one time said, if that doesn't start your fire, your wood's wet. <laughs> and I, this phrase has stuck with me. If you don't see the beauty of the God of the universe, the God who, who created every single thing you see becoming human to set you and me free from the power of death. If you don't see the beauty and the majesty of that, your woods went. From the highest peak to the most humbling place, God comes for me and for you. All out of love. I read a story several years ago. John Piper was preaching on Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, which is where Isaiah sees God in the temple. And he said, as I prepared my sermon, he said, I was overwhelmed by the holiness and the power of God in that scene where Isaiah falls on his face and says, woe is me, and the coal comes from the altar. If you've not read Isaiah 6, you should go back and read it. It's really a pattern for all of worship, I think. But, but he says, as I prepared the sermon, he said, I got to the end of my preparation and I realized I haven't really given any application at all. 
And he said, and I thought, that's not really, I mean, you, you, pastors need to give application. You want to apply the truth. But he said, I just felt God saying, just communicate, try the, your best to paint the picture of the holiness and greatness of God. The beauty and majesty of Jesus is what I'm saying today. To just paint that picture. And he writes later, he didn't realize it, but there was a family in their church that week that had just found out the week before that their child was being abused, sexually abused by a relative. They just found that out that week. And he says, I learned it weeks later. And he said, my first thought was, that's when you found out and I didn't give you any application. I didn't give you anything to, to nurture you that day. All I did was tell you about the greatness and the holiness of God. And the guy says to him, John, these have been the hardest months of our lives, but do you know what's gotten me through? The vision of the greatness of God's holiness that you gave me that first week of January, it's been a rock that I could stand on. And I want to tell you, your interpretation of scripture, you may be wrong. Your spiritual experiences may fade. But if you can live your life based on the beauty and majesty of Jesus, this great God who, who takes on flesh and, and not only takes on flesh and walks among us, but humbles himself and dies so that we can be made free. If, if that beauty and majesty somehow can resonate in your soul, you can handle whatever life brings at you because it's deeper than just knowledge. You're experiencing the profound, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being in a real and deep way. We have to see the greatness of the beauty and majesty of Jesus, the God of the universe who the night before he died kneels down and washes his disciples' feet, knowing that within hours they'll all run away. That's God. You know, we're not changed by what we know. You've got to get that. You're not changed by knowledge. How many people know they have a habit that's destructive to them, whatever it may be, and yet still can't seem to stop? We're not changed by knowledge. We're changed by what we love. We're changed by the things that, that impact us at a level deeper than thinking, but at the very center of who we are. And that's the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. And being engaged with that, Realizing that this God, who was so great and so powerful, came for me. That is what will begin to change your behavior. That is what will be the rock you stand on when life falls apart, when your spiritual experiences fade away, when you don't have anything good to say, when, when it just seems like God has turned and run away. If you've built a life on the beauty and majesty of Jesus, that'll hold fast. Because Jesus is greater than angels and the law that they gave. He's the greatest thing we could ever need. Now, the, the question is, will we stop running away to all those other things and build our lives on him? See, if you want to leave behind all those things that you hold on to and cling only to Jesus, it starts by growing to love the beauty and the majesty of who he is, which is what we're going to see right here. Let's pray. God, we, we get so distracted and we turn Christianity into a system to make us feel good about ourselves, elevate us over other people, puff up our egos. Sometimes we just turn to it because we, we, we feel like we have to have an answer or we can't make it. And, and God, in those moments, I pray that we could just turn to you because there are moments where there aren't any answers. 
There are moments when all our religious rituals and systems and practices just don't seem to work. There are moments when we feel totally alone. And it's my prayer that in those moments, what we can hold on to is, is a God who would come into flesh and offer, you would offer yourself for us so that we could be set free from the power of death. And God, wherever people are today, I pray that, that you will, it says that, that the sun is the radiance of the glory of God. Please let that radiance radiate not to our heads only, but deep within our hearts and the very center of who we are so that we can love deeply who you are and that that will transform our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The writer of Hebrews wasn't the only guy that kept referring back to the Old Testament. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 3, talks about when Moses went up on the mountain and saw God. And remember, he came down and he had to put a veil over his face because he had looked at the glory of God so much that it was, made him bright. And, and Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, We who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory. So what he's saying is, as we look at the beauty and majesty of Jesus... As we focus on that, that's not how we live life. We live life focused on our situation or on our failure or on what needs to happen. And what, what the scripture says is look at the beauty and majesty of Jesus. And, it, and Paul says, as we reflect the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. It doesn't say as you learn more, you look more like Jesus. It says as you look at him, somehow you are transformed to be like him with ever-increasing glory. And that's, that's what I'd say for you this week. You know what? When you're, look, when you're focused on your problem or your failure or your situation, just remember, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the beauty of that, focusing on that, transforms you into a different person. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen. Amen.